from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast is mourning the death of at least 93 people killed in a suicide attack at a mosque in a highly fortified security compound in Peshawar. For now what we know uh, from the security officials is that uh, that uh, uh, that are talking to the local media outlets is that the suicide bomber was able to get inside the mosque and he was standing in the front row as he blew himself up when the prayer started. Around 100 people were killed and nearly 200 injured when a bomb went off in a mosque in Pakistan's Peshawar. The mosque was located in the compound of the police headquarters in Peshawar. Many of those killed and injured were police personnel or related to them. At a time when Pakistan is struggling with its worst economic crisis in decades, the hardest thing for it to handle may be the rising threat of terrorism. In the previous episode we looked at the economic challenges the country is facing. In today's episode we're looking at how Pakistan is struggling to rein in terrorism. There are few people better equipped to discuss this topic than our guest today. Aisha Siddiqui is a columnist and senior fellow at King's College in London. She's also the author of the books Military Incorporated, Inside Pakistan's Military Economy, and the book Pakistan's Arms Procurement and Military Buildup. In today's episode, Aisha Siddiqui is in conversation with TY Plus's Harinder Baweja about what the Peshawar attack exposes about Pakistan's flawed counter-terrorism strategy. She explains why Imran Khan's talks with the Taliban didn't help, the limited options for the Shahbaz Sharif government, and how much the Indian government needs to worry about the situation in Pakistan. A deadly terror attack, political instability, a free-falling rupee. and an economic crisis what next for pakistan well this is going to continue this is not something which is going to resolve easily and very soon what the political government had hoped was that there may be some help from saudi arabia uae or even china but that's been the first disappointment for pakistan and it's the first time that a pakistani government has been disappointed in such a manner so now the options are major restructuring remember 1991 when india india's economy was stagnating when inflation was going high but not that high what pakistan has at the moment but economy was fumbling and it took dr manmohan singh as finance minister then to come and pull uh, indian economy out so probably pakistan is waiting for that man or the moment you know the tehreeke taliban and i want to talk about peshawar is wreaking havoc in pakistan i mean more than 100 dead in the suicide attack in peshawar what does the ttp's reemergence really mean for pakistan deadly if you've also noticed that it's 100 people dead in peshawar but then soon after there was an attempt in miawali which is punjab now shahbaz sharif's and nawaz sharif's politics has always been for a long time been protect punjab keep this intact we can deal with terrorism outside so far punjab 
seems to be secure. But, you know, it's a matter of days and months. What starts in KP Khyber Pakhtunkhwa doesn't stay in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. It is going to come down south. That's number one. Number two is that the question in my mind is that it is definitely going to attract other groups, Punjab-based groups as well, at least members of those groups, if not the leadership, you know, to go and join. I mean, this is where the activity is. Right now, the attack was claimed by Jamatul Ehrar, which is a breakaway or segment of TTP, Tariq Taliban Pakistan. They are Lashkar-e Jhangvi. A lot of members came from Lashkar-e Jhangvi into Jamatul Ehrar, but they are Pashtuns so far. They're not Punjabis. So Punjabis are being kept out. And the question is, how long can it happen? And the problem is that there is no way that Pakistan has a magic wand to kind of take control of the TTP problem. Uh, Americans are not there. There is no power which is interested to put their fingers in in this jar, terrorism jar, uh, or counter-terrorism jar. So that's one problem. The other is that if Pakistan expands its operation, say, bomb areas inside Afghanistan, the risk is that it's going to blow up the conflict even more. Some have suggested uh, that they would take the counter-terror war into Afghanistan, but that's not easy. I don't think it's even doable. I mean, with your economy bleeding, with two weeks financial reserves left, you can't be expanding war. This is not the moment. You know, many are linking the re-emergence of the uh, TTP to the return of the Afghan uh, Taliban to power in Kabul. Do you think that's the only reason or there are other factors for this re-emergence? Primarily that. The other is that there is a difference between Mullah Umar-led Afghan Taliban and, you know, the current leadership of Afghan Taliban itself. Mullah Umar was a village mullah. He wasn't really thoroughly Sharia literate. These guys are more madrasa trained, Sharia literate. Now, one can then argue that there are scores of interpretation of Islamic rules, laws, etc. But the way they look at uh, Sharia and the way they look at Islamic law, they have a handle of how they understand religious laws and uh, religious norms. So they're very inspired by ideology. That's what I'm trying to say. See, Mullah Umar, he was a village mullah trying to bring some order to a very disorderly Afghanistan during the 1990s. These guys, I would argue, are expansionists as far as ideology is concerned. Uh, They're far more dangerous than Afghan Taliban version one. Firstly, the thing is that TTP thought, hell, if Afghan Taliban can can be ruling Kabul, then why can't we expand and have a control in the tribal areas and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, you know. What is very scary is also, it's also that while Pakistan has always resisted uh, liberal Pashtuns and any reference to 
liberal Pashtun nationalism. These guys are also Pashtun nationalists, and they're pushing the Pakistani state control of, of those areas. We've begun to notice them now that violence has started, but actually, even before, I mean, it's been the last one year that people in the tribal areas have been complaining, they have been demonstrating, raising their voice. In Peshawar, I mean, there was a friend who recently told me, they said, there's not a single person worth their salt in Peshawar who doesn't give extortion money to the Taliban. Because the state and its agencies say, you go to them, we are being threatened. They're like, listen, you have to sort it out yourself. So this has been happening for a year, and now it's blown up. Now, you talk to Pashtun Tahafas movement, and I was just looking at some of the statements by uh, Manzur Pashtin, who said that this is almost, I mean, his claim is it's being orchestrated, this level of violence, so that the state can go and, you know, beg for money from the Americans or help and or the Chinese or the Russians. The problem being, I don't think anybody's interested to pay. The other, again, and, and this is the realm of conspiracy theory, and, and I'll also give you the reason why I'm referring to conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory is people are on the streets. I mean, you talk to people, people are saying, this is being allowed to happen so that there can be an excuse that, look, it's the army which protects. You need the army. And so don't, don't push it. Don't wish it away. This remains the only, you know, the guardian of the state and society. That does sound like a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it is. That's what people are saying. Now, the reason I even mention a conspiracy theory, I'll give you my reason, is because how did the state then allow these guys, these Taliban, to actually set foot and establish themselves? I mean, this could have been sorted out. A pushback could have happened a year ago when it was still more doable. Why wasn't it happening? But wasn't Imran Khan in uh, negotiations with the TTP and that could perhaps be one reason, right? Well, Imran Khan's government was sympathetic to the Taliban. And it's a fact that Taliban are more sympathetic with Imran Khan than other parties. That's one. But I'm also reminded that do we entirely blame Imran Khan for this policy? Imran Khan recently said that, you know, the idea was to bring the Taliban, settle them. So it was a kind of a very odd DDR formula, demobilization, disarmament and reintegration. Uh, the kind that has happened in Africa when states have kind of uh, broken down and military institutions are weak. So it's a formula that, that theoretically has been used there. I don't think it's, it can be used here. But this is an idea which had actually started way back in 2009-2010 when General Kiani was in charge. After the SWAT operation, there was this constant try that get hold of all those militants who can be persuaded 
not to fight the state, you know, the good Taliban versus bad Taliban. So these Taliban, what do you do with these good Taliban once you convince them not to fight the state? Convert them, change them, bring them into the societal fold. There was this discussion about giving them jobs in police and, and even the army. Uh, and I remember many of the uh, so-called Pakistani liberal intellectuals, public intellectuals, who are today horrified at the, at the idea of Taliban, were writing in Pakistan's newspapers, arguing that, nee, 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 you know, you can't kill them, so you have to integrate them. And there were some of us, very few of us, who were shouting that, no, this integration is not going to work. In fact, it's going to bite back. They'll, they'll actually convert you rather than you converting them. Because to date, I don't see internationally anywhere a perfect formula or close to perfect formula for counter-violent extremism. All countries do counter-terrorism, but CVE is far tougher. So Imran Khan carried that policy. It was also beneficial for him. I'll ask you directly, what are Shehbaz Sharif's choices? I mean, he has blamed Imran Khan's rehabilitation policy, but as the prime minister, he has to deal with the threat. So is he going to go after them militarily? The problem is, can he go back after them militarily? What Pakistan needs to do definitely is improve its security, improves intelligence in its areas, make sure that these militants do not cross over into Pakistan's territory. Because the minute they even mention Afghanistan point a finger, you know, Afghan, Afghan foreign minister twice has said Pakistan should look inside its territory instead of pointing finger at, at Afghanistan. So that creates a lot of unhappiness the minute they start talking about it. So I would say I don't think he has those options. I mean, today, Pakistan has this decades of investment now in Taliban. So everybody else in Afghanistan really hates Pakistan. So you don't want to get this other bunch, which is the Taliban also hating you. That's going to be make for a very miserable Pakistan then. They're already hating Pakistan. They are hitting Pakistan, but they're not at war. We don't want to start a war with the Taliban. They're saying, no, 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 you know, it's not us. It's Jamaatul Ehrar. No, it's not us. It's uh, somebody else. It's Daesh. So they are deflecting responsibility, but also deflecting responsibility of holding someone responsible. Pakistan has sent... Hina Rabani Khar is trying to act like this big brother and telling Afghanistan that, look, you depend on us and you better behave and, and not hurt our interests. But it's just that Afghans are not listening. So I think a different calculation has set in. And, you know, the sad part is that with Pakistan weakening domestically, I mean, there's it's a battle going on. It's a political battle, which is like everybody's bleeding. So in that condition, what do you do? When Taliban look at Pakistan, they look at a very weak country. So I think that's why they're also being aggressive. 
but what are Shahbaz Sharif's choices vis-a-vis the TTP? What he's doing at the moment, improve intelligence, improve policing, make sure these guys don't come into Pakistan's territory and attack because borders are porous. Make sure that wherever you know the, the fencing was done actually works and it's not just a useless game. I don't think that, that there is more that he can do. Part of the reason that Taliban attacks have, have increased is also when Imanul Zwari was killed, uh, one of the reasons that Taliban are angry on Pakistan is because ordinary Taliban believe that Pakistan allowed use of its air, uh, airspace to American drones. So you can't even get America to intervene. And, and, and also America is not interested. It's too involved in, in Ukraine. You know, I'm reminded of what Hillary Clinton said 12 years ago, that if you have snakes in your backyard, you can't expect them to bite only your neighbors. Quite significant, those words seem right now, don't they? Yeah, uh, but it's interesting that Pakistan's security establishment believes that it should be sending, the one message should be sending its neighbors, especially in India, is that if you keep cockroaches in your backyard, don't think that it's not going to spoil your your environment. I'm quoting from a play which the ISPR uh, kind of supported recently on politics in India. It's kind of surreal. It's in a way bizarre, but there isn't a major reimagining that is happening. I don't think there is that capacity to reimagine. I think that's more dangerous. The alternative voices all were shut out of the country. There is no conversation. So in that situation, and then honestly, in my life as a Pakistani, I've never seen, I mean, Pakistan's, we've, we've been through crises and this country's, it's not that crisis is the first time that Pakistan has been in a crisis. But it's the first time that multiple crises are coming together. Never in my life have I seen this condition before. It's like economic crisis, political crisis, and also intellectual crisis. It's also a crisis of lack of thought, dearth of imagination, where people can't actually stand up and say, no, no, this is what needs to be done, and are able to have that dialogue. You mentioned uh, former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh in the context of the economy. Vis-a-vis terrorism, do you think Pakistan needs somebody like Narendra Modi to take the wars into the tribal areas with, I mean, dare I say, uh, some kind of a surgical strike? Even if Narendra Modi was in Pakistan, he wouldn't have been able to do it. With these kind of conditions, it's just not doable. Let's not forget that in tribal areas in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, you also have the Pashtun Tahafuz movement, which has been crying forever. 
the story is very far more complex than you know what meets uh, the eye. PTM has been crying out loud that look, try us, punish us, but don't do things which are unconstitutional. Don't pick up people, don't kill people. We have to know what's happening. In a counter-terrorism fight, the state has to be more robust. The problem at the moment is that the state is no longer, it doesn't have the capacity to be robust. It's not that operations are not happening. Operations are happening. But these are the operations which are neither solving problems and in fact creating more problems. Because it's not always the guilty who is punished, it's also the innocent who gets punished. And the innocent then begin to cry. You have Pashtuns saying that, look, you've had a very bad policy for so long, for decades you've had a bad policy, you brought Talibanization to our lands, you have welcomed them again and again, you've completely you know, messed us up, ruined us. I mean, look, at the time when America was leaving Afghanistan, what was Pakistan's national security advisor doing? Besides uh, giving interview to Karan Thapar, who was going around telling the whole world how important it is for the world to help the Afghan Taliban and, and Afghanistan, and actually it is good, and the Taliban are going to turn around, they're going to let girls, uh, you know, uh, education. The problem is that the new Afghan Taliban leadership, which I, what I mentioned earlier, they are ideologically committed. We've read these theories, uh, arms for development, give development and motivate boring societies to give up arms, for example. No, that's not going to happen. Taliban have an ideology. They will be there. And also the fact is that you have Daesh and Al-Qaeda also breeding there, which means that Taliban have no motivation, zero motivation, to tone down their ideology. Because if you tone down your ideology, people are going to go and join these other groups. So Aisha, given the crisis in Pakistan, and you've laid it out very well, uh, how much should India worry? You know, I think this is a time when I know there is very little sympathy in Delhi for talking to, to Pakistan. I mean, let this enemy rotten, burden hell is, is probably the attitude. But I think what India needs to understand is that it needs careful minds to think about Pakistan and actually, at least on the sidelines, have a talk by the global forum with global players about Pakistan. Sadly, I know, in, in Delhi and in Washington, there's also a belief that Pakistan has always benefited from its victimhood. But the problem is that it's like somebody holding a gun to the head and said, I'm going to kill myself if you don't help me. But this is a real situation. Now he's a foreign minister. Bilal Bhutto referred to the Indian prime minister as the butcher of Gujarat. Did he leave any scope for diplomacy after that remark? 
remember when Imran Khan used to make all these nasty comments, right? All these comments. Even then, there was back-channel diplomacy that was happening. I'm not begging for sympathy, India's sympathy. I'm asking for India's realization that not to shut their eyes and say, let this old enemy and neighbor self-destruct. Afghanistan for years has been a hellhole created, and Pakistan has a lot of contribution to that, but Afghanistan has been a hellhole for, for decades now. You don't want Pakistan joining in. And I really hope that the government gets its act together to kind of recover from their dire strait. And I believe that those dire straits are not going to end unless constructive thought goes inside Pakistan. But while that constructive thought happens, I think India should also look at the country sympathetically wherever it can. And I'm not even saying that this is going to be doling out something to Pakistan, money or this, that or the other. I think it is basically understanding Pakistan a bit more and see wherever conversations could begin and assist Pakistan to think that, look, it, you know, it can't be a zero-sum game between India and Pakistan. I don't see it happening in the next two years, unfortunately. Pakistan has its elections this year, end of this year, if at all, if we have the money to do it. India is going to have elections the year after. There is very little scope for any conversation. I know there are track twos happening. One just finished in London, another one probably in Bangkok. But if you look at the track twos themselves, you see that there is very little engagement between the government in India and these track two conversations. Some talk has to start. Before I let you go, Aisha, uh, you know, Parvez Musharraf has uh, passed away. Uh, a few lines on his legacy. You know, what, what, what to say? I mean, he's a traitor. You know, he is a man who went against the Constitution, not once but twice. His legacy is the constant ongoing insurgency in Balochistan. He didn't keep a balance. He destroyed the political system. He was no different than Ziaul Haq or Ayub Khan, which means divisive, only thinking about short-term targets. And, and in fact, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what his legacy was. Earlier on, before Musharraf, the tradition was you never talked about or criticized retired officers. He broke that tradition. The other thing is that before Musharraf, once you had served in the ISI, you were kept outside the GHQ, critical positions. He made ISI mainstream. He has done a lot of organizational damage to the Pakistan army, starting from destroying the Joint Chiefs of Staff Committee, the organization. Somebody today asked me, 
what are people uh, thinking about Parvez Musharraf today? I said, sadly, nothing. He was long gone. He was not living there. He will probably be more divisive. His, his family would probably, I hope they don't do it. But his family may want to kind of bring him back and bury him in, in Pakistan. While the last judgment of 2019 of the special court was that not only that they gave him death sentence, they said, even if he dies before being hung to death, his body should be dragged, hung and dragged. Not that they meant that this be carried out, but was a symbolic judgment for somebody who had imposed emergency in the country twice, not once, but twice. He was responsible for Benazir Bhutto's security and he let it down. Nobody has investigated. So, you know, it's a, sadly, with, with his death, we, are, we remain at a juncture, Pakistan, where the story remains bad politicians, good army, or bad army to be tolerated politicians. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe, and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas, and stories that matter, subscribe to We're available on TOI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, Email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.